Dave and Cheryl met for the first time in June of 1996. They were in California at the time, and they met through a mutual friend at a movie theater. For Dave, it was like a lightning bolt. It was love at first sight. For Cheryl, it took a while. Six years, in fact, a while for her to clue in to the depth and the nature of this love that they had for one another. But after those six years, Dave and Cheryl decided to get married. Uh, they started their family together. They had kids. Their careers started to take off. Uh, Dave took a job as an executive at Yahoo, and Cheryl became the COO of a little company called Facebook. This was a true high-octane couple and family. Eleven years after they were married, they were on a vacation, taking one of those few moments where they truly did unplug and unwind. They're down in Mexico at an exclusive resort. They're there to celebrate the 50th birthday of one of their friends. Cheryl decided to take a nap, lounging in one of the chairs by the pool, and Dave decided that he wanted to go for a workout before dinner. Cheryl fell asleep, woke up, went to the room. Dave never came back to the room to get ready in time for dinner. And so she knew something was wrong. She retraced Dave's steps and she found him in the workout gym room, still hunched over, bloodied with the very exercise equipment that he had been on not that long ago. And it was too late. There was nothing they could do. Cheryl wrote this, And so began the rest of my life. It was and still is a life I never would have chosen, a life I was completely unprepared for, the unimaginable, sitting down with my son and daughter and telling them that their father had died, hearing their screams joined by my own. Grief is a demanding companion. It's hard not to be absolutely devastated with Cheryl in the midst of her tragic loss and the nature of the change. The incredible contrast that one moment you're riding high and you were relaxing at this beautiful beachside resort and the very next minute you're under the fluorescent lights of a morgue. All in an instant. One minute, you're this power couple, this amazing family that everybody looks up to. You have all of the resources and the synergy you need. And then in the next moment, you're trying to explain this to your kids. And you're wondering, how am I going to raise a child all on my own? I want to begin with a question today. When is a time that your life didn't turn out like you thought it would? When's a moment when you thought that you were going this direction and yet God ended up taking you that direction? We're calling these moments detours because you had a route, you had a destination, you had a plan, and all of a sudden you've got to fear off course, maybe even off road in order to get to where you want to go. I'll bet many of you can relate, whether it's with a job or whether it's the loss of a loved one or whether it's a sudden move, a transition, a diagnosis, something 
can be catalytic in an instant where all of a sudden you had this plan A and now you've got to go to plan B. Let's begin with a little poll. Raise your hand if you think God always has a plan for your life. Raise your hand if you always know the plan that God has for your life. (laughs) Anybody? Me neither. The Bible says, for surely I know the plans that I have for you, says the sovereign Lord. But we don't necessarily know it. It's the old adage, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. It's the nature of how things work. It's not the life that we had prepared for. It may not have even been the life that we would have chosen. But it is your life. It is my life. And we have to figure out how to adjust to what God has put before us. I want to introduce you this morning to another couple. They're another real couple, but they come to us from the pages of the Bible. I want to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 24. We're going to start reading in verse 13. The reason I call this group a couple is that the latest in scholarship believe that the individual that's named in this story, whose name is Cleopas, is uh, an Aramaic derivation of the Greek form of the name of Clopas, and so that they're actually one in the same people, and we know that he's married, and that oftentimes in a patriarchal culture, the wife wouldn't be named in the story, so the likely scenario is that this is Cleopas and his wife walking along a road. Now, a little bit of backstory for them. They too have experienced, like Cheryl, a a devastating loss. They have experienced the profound change in what they thought was going to be one direction and ends up being something else. Their dreams have been shattered, and they've lost their hope. Their expectations have come crashing into reality and they're living with profound disappointment. The disappointment that they feel is that their good friend, the one that they had put their hope in, this Jesus Christ, was killed like a common criminal on a cross. It's been a couple of days since that has happened. They've heard wind of some confusing reports that Jesus is no longer in the tomb and that people aren't even really sure what has happened. And so they're walking away from Jerusalem. The text says that they are amazed, confused, bewildered. The the text literally says that they've gotten their feet knocked out from underneath them. And let's listen to God's holy word. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked among them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. 
If you have your own Bible, I would love for you to underline, circle that key phrase there that says, but we had hoped. Do you know what that's like? But we had hoped to get into that school, but we had hoped to have a different outcome for that sales pitch, but we had hoped for a different career path, but we had hoped for a different diagnosis, but we had hoped for a healthy child, but we had hoped that our relationship would last longer than this. I'll bet you can fill in the blank, but we had hoped, and I'll bet you can find something that easily fits right at the top of your head where you've had to make one of these kinds of detours. I don't think there is anything sadder than hope expressed in the past tense. But we had hoped. Hope is supposed to be the kind of thing that propels us forward. Hope is supposed to be the kind of thing that takes us into God's future. Hope is the kind of thing that's supposed to inspire us, to give us confidence, to fill us with faith. And so when we say, but we had hoped, we're driving forward while looking out our rearview mirror, and it usually doesn't end very well. The kind of hope that these two in this biblical story had expressed was not just any kind of hope. It was not the hope of a long life or a better career or for health. It was the hope of the redemption of all things. It was the hope that Jesus, this one in whom they had put their confidence and their trust, that he was the one who was going to redeem them, that he was going to fix everything, that he was going to make everything right, that everything that was wrong was going to be undone. It was all going to be put back together. They thought that Jesus was this Messiah, that he was the one who could fix everything. But now they've lost their hope. How does Jesus respond to their lost hope? Let's see how he responds to them. Skip down to verse 25. Jesus said to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. I'm pretty sure that Jesus didn't do very well in a pastoral care class in seminary. Here you have this couple in the midst of the grief and the loss and the pain, and how does Jesus respond to them? how foolish you are, how slow you are. This is not the most sympathetic response. And you can either think that Jesus is just being rude here, or maybe there's something deeper going on that the Bible and Jesus are telling us. I choose to believe it's the latter, and that's this, that we are foolish and slow, and that thanks be to God that you don't have to be smart and quick to enter into the kingdom of heaven and to be one of his followers. That God's not going to give us an IQ test that is not about speed. That we get included because we're slow and we don't quite clue in to what's going on, that there's room for the likes of you and me. And then Jesus begins to 
kind of explain to them what is going on. And did you notice the text talks about how he started all the way back with Moses. He goes through a remedial crash course and helps to explain to them all of the prophets, all the history, how all the story weaves together. And they start to really understand what Jesus is talking about. What is it that they have kind of the light bulb for them? I love how a New Testament scholar by the name of N.T. Wright puts it. He says it like this. He says, they, like everybody else in Israel, had been reading the Bible through the wrong end of the telescope. They had been seeing it as the long story of how God would redeem Israel from suffering. But it was instead the story of how God would redeem Israel through suffering. Every major religion, every worldview, every way of life, every philosophy has to wrestle with the question of why is there suffering in this world? And there are lots of different responses from other religions that'll talk about pain avoidance, that if you do these things, if you live this way, then you will avoid the pain that you're supposed to experience in this life. There are other worldviews and philosophy that talk about ways that you can relieve the pain. Here's how you can ease it. And then there are other religions and philosophies out there that talk about how you can endure the suffering. But the gospel is not ultimately about those kinds of things. The gospel is categorically different from all those other perspectives about suffering because the gospel is about redeeming the suffering. That no tear is ever wasted. That there's no loss, that there's no pain that you have experienced, I've experienced, that's ever been experienced throughout history. That through the power of the cross, you are never too far for God to redeem your situation and your hurt. All things work together for the good, the Bible says. It doesn't mean that everything is good. What it does mean is that all things can be turned out for His glory. God can redeem the suffering, and you can look at every other religion and worldview in the world, and I'll tell you this, our God, the God of Jesus Christ, is the only one who suffers. He's the only one who suffers for His people in a redemptive way. And so this is what they're learning, that they keep thinking it's about relief, it's about endurance, it's about avoiding suffering. The gospel is about redeeming the suffering. But the light bulb goes off for them and they're starting to understand it. They don't recognize him yet, even though they have the right explanation. We'll see how the story continues. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. First meal in the Bible, 
all the way back in the Garden of Eden, all the way back with Adam and Eve, the first meal that we have recorded in the Bible is that Adam and Eve ate of the knowledge of the tree of the forbidden fruit, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to determine for themselves that they wanted to be their own God, that they wanted to determine what was right and wrong. That's the first meal in the Bible. And it says in that meal that their eyes were opened and they were what? They were ashamed. Now you fast forward to this story, this story where they are now sitting and eating a meal together. And once again, their eyes are opened, but they're not ashamed. They recognize God and that God is with them and in fact has been with them all along. This is an image of Tennessee William. Probably, William's probably one of the most famous playwrights in the history of America. Wrote a streetcar named Desire, The Glass Menagerie. But he also wrote a series of collected works of short stories. And in one of his short stories, he tells the story of Jacob and Lila. Jacob Brodsky was a Russian Orthodox Jew whose family had immigrated when he was a young child to the United States. And his father owned a bookshop. Lila's family also immigrated from the United States when she was young and they came from France. These two childhood friends fell in love with one another at an early age and got married. Jacob loved the bookstore. His father died and left it to him. And at a young age, he continued to manage this prosperous bookstore. But Lila was more of a free spirit she had an amazing singing voice. And one day while she was singing in the shop, someone, a customer, discovered her talent and invited her to come to Europe in order to perform in some of the greatest venues in the world. She knew this was her break. She knew that this was her chance. And she wasn't going to let it go. She invited Jacob to come with her, and he said he couldn't leave the shop. He wouldn't leave the shop. She said, Jacob, I've got to go. And with his heart breaking, knowing that he was about to lose his bride, he reached into a drawer in the desk and pulled out this old key to the shop. And he handed the key to her, and he said this, you had better keep this because you will want it someday. Your love is not so much less than mine that you can get away from it. You will come back sometime and I will be waiting. She goes to Europe. She becomes a very successful performer and truth be told that many times she forgets about Jacob. She doesn't think of him very often. And then she realizes that she's always held on to that key. She's never been willing to throw it away or to let it go. And even in the midst of all of the success and in following all of her desires and dreams, she knows as she sees that key that she's supposed to go home. And so after 15 years, she makes her way back. 
What she doesn't know is that in those 15 years that her husband Jacob has thrown himself into books in the same way that an alcoholic would throw himself into drink, and that he's become possessed by the books, and that he doesn't even resemble his normal self. And so one day, with the key fitting into the lock, the door opening, and the bell ringing that a customer has arrived. Jacob sitting at his desk, his face buried in a book. He looks up, and it says this. He spoke to her in that hollow, quavering voice that had become habitual to him, these words. Do you want a book? She raised her gloved hand to her throat and uttered a slight gasp. She stammered, no. That is, I wanted a book, but I've forgotten the name of it. She realizes that he doesn't recognize her. And so she pulls up a chair to the desk and sits next to him, and she begins to tell him the story of their lives, of Jacob and Lila, and that they met as children, and that they fell in love, and that she left and she ran away, but that now she still has the key and she's come back. And Tennessee Williams writes this, when the woman spoke again, there was a note of terror in her voice. She must have begun to realize what had happened, what had become of the man who had been her husband. You remember it. You must remember it. The story of Lila and Jacob. She was searching his face desperately, but there was nothing in it but bewilderment. He said at last, there is something familiar about the story. I think I have read it somewhere. It seems to me that it is something by Tolstoy. And all that you hear in that moment is the key hitting the desk as she finally lets it go. And she turns and she walks out of the store, never to return again, with the tears flooding down her face. My dear friends in Christ, the gospel at its core is a forgotten love story. That the risen Lord, Jesus Christ, is coming. And the question is, will we recognize him? Or are we so lost in our own stories? Are we so stuck in our own routines? Are we so disenchanted by our own broken hearts that we're unable to see? But I'm here to declare before you that disappointment doesn't have to turn into despair. That yes, this might be the life that you haven't chosen. And that yes, this might be the life that you don't feel like you're prepared for. But it is your life and that hope can be found through the suffering. 
that joy is still possible, that the longing that you feel for home and the great deep desire that you have for reunion, that that is still reality, that that is still what he desires for you and for me. Your lover has returned. And so eat without shame. Open your eyes. The Redeemer has come. And He's come for you. Will you pray with me? Our gracious and loving Father, so often our lives do not turn out like we thought. And so, God, for the person who's on a detour right now with shattered dreams and hopes dashed and expectations that have gone unmet and now find themselves in disappointment, will you minister to that person right now? Thank you, God, that we can be slow, that we don't have to be smart. Will you take the hopes that are in the past tense, and will you now propel them for your future? Redeem the suffering, Father. Come back to us and meet us at this table and open our eyes with this meal. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said.